Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for February 2016. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the last month's critical care literature and talk about what caught our eye. Well, the big news is the new sepsis 3 definition, the third international consensus definitions for sepsis and septic shock. They have been released. We have not seen a significant change to sepsis definitions since the 1991 definitions of sepsis, which were SERS and infection, severe sepsis, sepsis and organ dysfunction, and septic shock, sepsis-induced hypotension persisting despite adequate fluid resuscitation. There are three articles that were published in JAMA the first one provides the definitions and gives the story around them, while the other two provide evidence for the derivation and validation of some components of the definition. So these new definitions represent a major milestone in the evolution of our understanding and management of sepsis and really is a must-know subject and a must-read article. So in summary, sepsis is defined now as a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. Patients with suspected infection who are likely to have a prolonged ICU stay or to die in the hospital can be promptly identified at the bedside with a quick sofa, and we'll come back to that. Q-sofa is an alteration in mental status, systolic blood pressure less than 100 millimeters of mercury, or respiratory rate greater than 22 per minute. In lay terms, sepsis is a life-threatening condition that arises when the body's response to an infection injures its own tissues and organs. So sepsis has been simplified. It is now just a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by dysregulated host response to infection. Organ dysfunction can be identified as an acute change in total SOFA score of greater than two points consequent to the infection. So the baseline SOFA score can be assumed to be zero in patients not known to have pre-existing organ dysfunction. And a SOFA score increase of greater than two reflects an overall mortality risk of approximately 10% in a general hospital population with suspected infection. Even patients presenting with modest dysfunction can deteriorate further, emphasising the seriousness of this condition and the need for prompt and appropriate intervention, if not already being instituted. Septic shock is defined as a subset of sepsis in which underlying circulatory and cellular or metabolic abnormalities are profound enough to substantially increase mortality. It can be identified with a clinical construct of sepsis with persisting hypotension requiring vasopressors to maintain a mean arterial pressure of greater than 65 millimeters of mercury and having a serum lactate of greater than 2 millimoles per liter despite adequate volume resuscitation. So with these criteria, hospital mortality is in excess of 40%. Finally, in their definitions, the terms Severe sepsis, sepsis syndrome, and septicemia were recommended to be eliminated. So that's the new definitions. We've got a new sepsis definition, a new organ dysfunction definition, a new septic shock definition. 
which don't use the SERS criteria and we've got rid of severe sepsis, sepsis syndrome and septicemia. So how did they do this? Well the process was that eSickham convened a task force of 19 experts in ICU, infectious diseases, surgery, pulmonary specialists. They conducted iterative discussions, literature review, Delphi consensus process and testing of clinical criteria through large databases. When task force recommendations were compiled they were circulated to all the major international societies for endorsement. The issues that they addressed were trying to differentiate sepsis from uncomplicated infection, an issue that has bothered many of us clinically over the years, to update definitions of sepsis and septic shock to be consistent with pathobiology, to identify valid diagnostic criteria to uniformly identify patients with sepsis that ideally includes all elements of sepsis, infection, host response and organ dysfunction, but is also simple, timely, has a reasonable cost and is available in all hospital settings. And finally, they wanted to integrate biology and clinical identification with epidemiology and coding. The paper also tells us that the task force identified challenges and opportunities. So assessing the validity of definitions when there is no gold standard was one challenge. Sepsis is not a specific illness. It is a syndrome encompassing partially understood pathobiology and is identified by a constellation of signs and symptoms in patients with suspected infection. Because no gold standard exists, the task force sought definitions and clinical criteria that were clear, fulfilled multiple domains and valid. A second challenge or opportunity was the improved understanding of sepsis pathobiology. The validity of the SERS conceptualization of sepsis has been challenged as a pro-inflammatory model does not take into consideration the anti-inflammatory, non-immunological pathways and host heterogeneity now known to be involved. Another challenge are the variable definitions. So for sepsis, the current use of two or more SERS criteria to define sepsis was unanimously considered by the task force to be unhelpful as they are present in patients who are hospitalized without infection, some who will never de develop adverse outcomes, while one in eight patients admitted to Australian New Zealand ICUs with infection and new organ failure don't have two criteria but end up with protracted illness and recovery. So they wanted to get rid of the SERS criteria and they did. Organ failure, there are various scoring systems with variables that are selected by different methods and some have little use outside of critical care. So they saw there was an opportunity to test the scoring systems and perhaps change the definition of organ failure. Septic shock, again there are multiple def definitions in use due to differences in clinical variables used, e.g. systolic blood pressure level, lactate, vasopressors, concurrent organ failure, fluid targets. Again there was an opportunity to come up with a more usable definition. And that's what they've done. So the controversies and limitations, well of course there are inherent challenges and limits to this process and, it, and its results. Sepsis is a broad term applied to an incompletely understood process, so there are limits to the definition. 
the use of QSOFA as a simple bedside assessment tool is validated on retrospective data sets and that was what one of the other JAMA studies went through but will need validation in prospective international cohorts. In addition, the data set validation was performed on predominantly US data sets, making external applicability to non-US providers and low and middle income countries an issue. So again, they'll have to be testing. There was significant debate about hyperlactatemia as it did not add to the predictive value of the definition of sepsis, but does identify a population with high mortality. In addition, it is not readily available. And then there's the ongoing issue about the reliable diagnosis of infection. That is, many patients with suspected sepsis have negative microbiology, and that remains unresolved. In the accompanying editorial by Edward Abraham, things are summed up nicely. Over the past 30 years, two major factors have led to a perceived need for better definitions. In particular, the increasing sophistication, at least in high-income countries, of modalities available for organ support in critical care units, including ventilators and dialysis, has resulted in growing numbers of patients with sepsis receiving care in intensive care units and enhanced awareness of the frequency and high costs associated with this condition. In addition, Greater understanding of the underlying pathophysiological mechanisms responsible for cellular dysfunction in experimental models and in patients with severe infection has accelerated the need for better entry criteria in clinical trials using therapies specifically directed towards molecular events thought to contribute to sepsis associated morbidity and mortality. So in summary, we have new definitions. They incorporate an up-to-date understanding of sepsis biology and include simple bedside assessment tools. The operationalization of these new definitions will need to be considered by institutions, health bodies, and incorporated into research criteria, hospital algorithms, early warning systems, etc. There will be debate and discussion, but I think you have to have this article. So let's move on to the second article that was published in JAMA to accompany the new definitions, which is the assessment of clinical criteria for sepsis for the third international consensus definitions of sepsis and septic shock, sepsis 3. So this article aims to assess the predictive validity of existing and new criteria for sepsis by applying them to data from several large electronic databases. So the, cr the criteria they test were SOFA, SIRS, the Logistic Organ Dysfunction System score, LODS, and a new score called QuickSOFA, QSOFA. So QSOFA is altered mentation, low systolic blood pressure, and elevated respiratory rate. Mentation, systolic blood pressure, respiratory rate. The cohort 148,907 patient encounters with suspected sepsis and a confirmatory analysis that included 706,000 out-of-hospital and hospital patients encounters at 165 US and non-US hospitals. The investigators found that among ICU encounters with suspected infection, of which there were about 8,000, the predictive validity the in-hospital mortality of SOFA was not significantly different than 
that derived from the more complex Lodz score, but was superior to that from Sirs and Q Sofa. So this means that Sofa for patients in ICU with suspected infection was the best score to predict in hospital mortality. Among patient encounters with suspected infection outside of ICU, so ward, ED, etc., QSOFA had the highest predictive validity for in-hospital mortality that was statistically greater than for SIRS, suggesting that it may have a utility as a prompt to consider possible sepsis. And that's convenient because QSOFA, remember its mentation, systolic blood pressure and respiratory rate, is a pretty easy bedside test. So in summary, what they found in this big database test was that patients with suspected infections in the ICU, SOFA and LODS had the best predictive validity compared to SIRS or QSOFA, and SOFA's the easiest, while for patients with suspected infection outside of ICU, QSOFA was superior. So perhaps QSOFA is something we're going to have to start using in our rapid response teams, or at least start measuring and assessing the validity of this outcome. Well that's it for the sepsis definitions but let's stay with sepsis for a bit longer. In the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine we've got the effects of alternative resuscitation strategies on acute kidney injury in patients with septic shock for the process and progress AKI investigators. It was inevitable that the large negative EGDT studies arise, process and promise would look at the effect of protocolized resuscitation, fluids, vasopressors, inotropes, etc., on the development of AKI and severe sepsis. This ancillary study to the PROCESS trial, which was the 31-site, 1,351-patient RCT, examined the occurrence of acute kidney injury, the course of acute kidney injury across treatment arms, novel biomarkers, and the use of renal replacement therapy. They report that acute kidney injury at enrolment was present in 626, so just under half of the patients. It occurred after enrolment in 617 patients, 37.6% um, of the protocol arm, 38% in the usual care, which wasn't significant. Patients did not receive different therapies in the different treatment arms. The duration and the rate of renal replacement therapy did not differ between groups. Fluid overload did not differ. And severe acute kidney injury patients did not differ in their complete and partial recovery rates. 60-day mortality was 6.2% for patients without acute kidney injury, 16.8% for stage 1 acute kidney injury, and 27.7% for 2 and 3. So overall, there were no difference in development or severity of AKI or renal outcomes in patients receiving protocolized management for septic shock, results that were consistent across subgroups. So what can we take from this? AKI is common, three quarters of it manifests in or soon after ED presentation. It is often transient and severe, although renal replacement therapy is needed only in four to eight percent and is strongly associated with 60-day mortality, particularly in patients that fail to recover kidney function. Unfortunately, we don't know how to stop acute kidney injury in sepsis, and as it occurs so early, we will need to find treatments that are effective 
soon after its onset, the Holy Grail perhaps. Sticking with sepsis for longer, another article in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, Assessment of Global Incidence and Mortality of Hospital-Treated Sepsis, Current Estimates and Limitations. So to reduce the global burden of sepsis, one of the oldest and most elusive syndromes in medicine, we first need to understand incidence and outcomes on a global scale. So this study systematically searched 15 international citation databases from 1979 to 2015 and reported the following. 27 studies from seven high-income countries for meta-analysis. These report a population incidence of hospital-treated sepsis of 288 per 100,000 person years and a hospital-treated severe sepsis incidence of 148. When restricted to the last 10 years, the figures were 437 and 270 respectively. Hospital mortality was 17% for sepsis and 26% for severe sepsis. There are no population level sepsis incidence and outcome estimates from lower income countries. Tentative extrapolation from high income countries suggests the global disease burden of 31.5 million for sepsis, 19.4 million for severe sepsis and 5.3 million deaths annually. To improve global sepsis outcomes, the authors say we urgently need epidemiological data from low and middle income countries. Now clearly they're going to have to use different sepsis definitions but there is a global burden of disease that we don't understand. Okay that's enough of sepsis. What else was published in the critical care literature last month? In JAMA we have the Diabolo investigators which was the effect of acetazolamide versus placebo on duration of invasive mechanical ventilation among patients with COPD. So the use of acetazolamide as a respiratory stimulant for ventilated patients with metabolic alkalosis and CPD is a scenario that many will be familiar with and perhaps equally familiar with the lack of certainty of whether or not it's of any benefit. So finally the Diabolo investigators have tried to answer this for us with a prospective RCD. What did they do? They enrolled 380 adult ICU patients with COPD receiving mechanical ventilation and expected to require it for at least 24 hours more from October 2011 to July 2014 in 15 French ICUs. Patients were randomized to placebo or cetazolamide, 500 to 1000 milligrams BD IV, initiated within 48 hours of ICU admission and continued during ICU up to 28 days. At baseline, the groups look pretty similar. Um, of interest, the baseline pH was only 7.3 to 7.32, CO2 52 to 55, and PO2 is high, 143 to 150. The primary outcome was duration of mechanical ventilation, and there was no significant difference between acetazolamide versus placebo. Um, the actual difference was 16 hours. Secondary outcomes, there's no difference in duration of wean, daily changes of minute ventilation, POCO2. There are no differences, daily changes of serum bicarb, number of days of metabolic alkalosis, um, and there was a significant increase in PF ratio with acetazolamide.
So overall, acetazolamide did not result in a statistically different duration of mechanical ventilation in patients with COPD requiring mechanical ventilation with a mild metabolic acid alkalosis. The authors suggest 16 hours might be clinically significant, although it wasn't statistically significant, but that's up for you to decide. Okay, in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, we've got a randomized trial of apneic oxygenation during endotracheal intubation of the critically ill. So apneic oxygenation during intubation, the delivery of supplemental oxygen to the nasopharynx in the absence of ventilation, works on the principle of ongoing gas exchange during apnea, leading to bulk flow of oxygen into the lungs and preventing or delaying hypoxemia during apnea. And there has been a lot of web-based talk of the benefits in the last year and quite a bit of a controversy. So it's good to see a bit of science. This prospective RCT compared the effect of apneic oxygenation to usual care on the lowest oxygen saturations during endotracheal intubation in 150 critically ill adults in a MICU. They report that the groups were similar at baseline. There was no difference in the median lowest saturation. There was no difference in the incidence of SATs less than 90%. And there was no difference in other outcomes, SATs less than 80%, um, a decrease of greater than 3%, duration of minute mechanical ventilation, ICU and hospital length of stay. There are a lot of limitations. They excluded difficult patients, the cohort included were easy to ventilate and received other adjunct therapies prior to intubation, NIV. The median intubation attempts were 1 and time to intubation was 132 to 150 seconds. So, this is a prospective RCT tells us that in a lower risk group of MICU patients, the addition of apneic oxygenation to standard pre-oxygenation measures was neither beneficial nor harmful. In intensive care medicine, we have critical care transitional programs with risk readmission death after discharge from ICU. Critical care transitional programs, including MEDTs, outreach teams, liaison nurse programs, aim to improve outcomes by reducing the risks associated with the transition of care between ICU or wards. The structures and programs vary, and the real effect is unclear. Also, a systematic review of before and after studies, no none of them suggested benefit. This, this study performed interrupted time series analysis to report the outcomes of over 32,000 adults discharged alive in eight ICUs from 2002 to 2012 in two cities in Alberta, Canada. The intervention was one city introduced transition team and another one didn't. They report that after introduction of the transition team, there was an immediate non-significant reduction in the proportion of ICU readmissions in the treatment group minus 0.4%, and a non-significant increase in the control group, plus 1%. At the end of the study, 3.6% of patients in both the study and the control groups were readmitted to ICU within 72 hours of discharge. There was no difference in mortality, that was out to 14 days post-ICU discharge, and there was no difference in length of stay. So overall, this study found that implementing a multidisciplinary ICU team to serially evaluate patients discharged from ICU was not associated with reduced patient readmission to ICU, mortality or length of stay. 
The authors discuss this finding, but suggest that institutions should evaluate the effectiveness of their own transition programs as they are resource intensive. So perhaps we need more information to develop risk stratified and targeted interventions in an effort to be effective and efficient. Again in intensive care medicine we have normocaloric versus hypocaloric feeding on the outcomes of ICU patients a systematic review and meta-analysis. So the optimal approach to feeding ICU patients remains elusive. Clinical practice guidelines emphasize early within one to two days normocaloric enteral nutrition which is 80 to 100 percent of energy expenditure where possible. In the belief that this may attenuate the de deleterious catabolic effects of critical illness. Yet, recent evidence suggests intentional hypocaloric or trophic feeding is at least equivalent. So, this systematic review and meta-analysis identified six studies with 2,500 patients that randomized ICU patients to hypocaloric or normocaloric goals and reported hospital-acquired infection, hospital mortality, ICU length of stay, and VFDs. What did they find? Two studies compared normocaloric feeding, which is 77% target, with trophic, 20% target, while four compared normocaloric with permissive underfeeding, which was around 50% target. Overall, there was no difference in the risk of infectious complications, an odds ratio of 1.03, Hospital mortality, odds ratio 0.91, ICU length of stay, mean difference of 0.05 days, or VFDs. So overall, this meta-analysis demonstrated no benefit of targeting 80 to 100% of daily caloric requirement compared to intentional hypocaloric goals. It is important to note that this study did not examine the effect of different protein targets. So, it seems we need more research because this is an equivocal meta-analysis. Bring on the target trial. So let's finish up with the ATACAS trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine by the ANSCA Clinical Trials Network and ATACAS investigators. This 2x2 two two factorial design trial randomly assigned patients undergoing coronary artery bypass who are at risk of perioperative complications to receive aspirin or placebo and tranexamic acid or placebo. They enrolled 2,100 patients from March 06 to Jan 13. This study reports the aspirin trial. The results were that they were well matched at baseline. The median time to post-operative aspirin was 18 and a half hours. The primary outcome of death or thrombotic complication by day 30 after surgery was 19.3% that was with aspirin versus 20.4% with placebo, relative risk of 0.95, p-value 0.55. There was no significant interaction between the effects of aspirin and transacamic acid with regard to the primary endpoint of major hemorrhage, and there was no difference in secondary outcomes. So, overall, preoperative aspirin continuation before coronary artery bypass surgery in a group deemed to be at high risk of complications resulted in neither a lower risk of death or thrombotic complications, higher risk of surgical bleeding, transfusions, 
or need for reoperation. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club for February 2016. Come to the site and have a look around. Otherwise, we'll see you next month. Thank you.